Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well, wherever you may be. Today, in a bumper episode recorded at C21's Content London last week, we hear from Netflix's Anne Mensah, Lindsay Salt, Sophie Klein and Tom Lyons about the streamer's UK programming strategy. Piers Wenger spells out the BBC's drama plans. And Hidden Light Productions' Roma Kana, MGM's Roller Bauer, Sony Pictures Television's Wayne Garvey and more reflect on the post-pandemic state of the international TV business. C21's Content London took place last week, with over 130 speakers and 1,300 delegates descending on the UK capital for the sellout development market's return as a physical event for the first time since the pandemic. Senior executives, producers, writers and talent from all around the world convened at the King's Place Conference Centre to get a glimpse of the hottest new shows, discuss how the business has changed in the past 18 months and the way things are shaping up for 2022. Hidden Light Productions Executive Chair Roma Kana, MGM President of International Television Productions Rola Bauer, Sony Pictures Television President of International Production Wayne Garvey, Oliver and Olbaum Associates Chairman Mark Oliver and Yes Studios Managing Director Dana Stern spoke to C21 Editor-in-Chief and Managing Director David Jenkinson to kick off the event. Hello everybody and welcome to Content London. Um, before we start, I'd just like to say a few thank yous. Um, I'd particularly like to thank the uh, Omricon uh, coronavirus variant um, for making the past two days an awful lot of fun. Really, really made everything easy. Uh, to all of you who have made the effort, despite everything, uh, to, be, to be with us today. Thanks to all of our amazing sponsors and to the C21 team who's worked so hard to make this happen. It was November 2019 when we all last met, um, just after Disney Plus had launched, and so much has happened in, in the meantime. We really do appreciate you being here. Uh, we're operating in the knowledge that everybody's double vaccinated and has taken tests and is fit for purpose, so we hope you all stay safe and well. Please do wear a mask in the sessions, if not for yourself, for everybody else. And so, without further ado, I'd like you to give a big round of applause to our first panel. We're really going to set the scene for the reset. I mean, this is the first time we've all sat down together in, in, in a couple of years, and I know so much has happened. I'd just like to start by asking each of you what you think has been uh, learned and lost during uh, lockdown. What, what, coming out of this, uh, Roma, what, what are your, your, your thoughts about what you will take forward that you wouldn't have done had we not gone through this pandemic? Well, you know, I think if, since I get to go first, I can state the obvious. Uh, which is what it means to collaborate and, and collaborating in person versus collaborating digitally. I think it's been really wonderful because I think we've all learned when and how we, we crave being in the same room together and when we can actually be quite efficient not being in the same room together. And I think this has opened up business collaboration and creative collaborations in a very different way where now suddenly you can work with artists all around the world and not worry about them having to come uh, into your physical space or not being valued on the same level. So for me, I hope we keep some of that efficiency. I hope we allow us all to work from home when that's appropriate and be not travel, not waste time commuting, um, but that we also um, think about the times when we wanna be together. And I think from my perspective, that's mostly creative, the moments where I thought, gosh, I wish we could sit in a room and 
you know, drink coffee and eat donuts and write things on walls and yeah, true, still do that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Rola, what's your big takeaway? What have you, what, what's been the best to come out of this and what's been the worst? Um, thanks, David. I actually, first, I'd like to also say to those dear friends and colleagues who haven't made it here, and it's unfortunate, but we are living in this incredibly difficult time. Um, what we are also, that's the paradox of it all, we're living in the most unbelievable time. I've been, a lot of you know, over 60, sorry, I just said over 60 years in this industry. <laughs> <laughs> over 30 years in this industry. And I find right now, there has never been a more exciting time. COVID actually just made us stop, made us realize exactly what Roma was saying in that we are having to take a look at what were our priorities, and whom do we want to work with because of everything else with, that was happening around us and of poor people who do not have the chance of being in a business as passionate and as wonderful as we are in. So for me, it was how do we work with each other in a way that encourages the best, yes, looking at a monitor for so many hours that we all become Google-eyed, <laughs> but also communicate in probably a more honest and more direct approach. And that's the best way to create. Because if you know what you can do, and if you know what you want to do, and you do it with partners that you have fun with, then you are creating the best stories ever. Cool. Um, Wayne, what, what's your big takeaway from 18 months of sitting in a room? Well, I didn't just sit, I don't know, I've been in prison. You make it sound like I've been in prison. Um, well, I think, um, well, I, I feel very blessed actually um, had to work in this industry and my particular circumstances. And um, I, I think that's something um, you feel a bit humble, don't you, by it? really, and um, makes you realise how lucky you are, the choices you made in life and the breaks you got. Um, I think about, I mean, what's amazing uh, to talk about the industry is we've kept on making television shows. And uh, I think the real hero, from our industry point of view, of course, are the, if I was like Hilary Benson, who's our wonderful head of production at Left Bank Pictures, you know, she's... <laughs> We're doing The Crown still, There's a, you know, we've, we've, we've got a new series of The Crown this time next year. We've, we've got a load of other shows that we've been shooting in Canada, we've been shooting in... It's amazing how producers, of course, produce, don't they? And they find solutions, that's what you, you all do, and the ingenuity of people and the desire to get on with it. And, and they're the people, I think. Uh, and, what, and what's interesting now, I think we're valuing them more, of course, actually. And as production, one of the things we'll probably talk about is increased production in the UK and what that's going to do to salary levels, etc. I think that will be reflected in, in, the, in the way we, we... Who are the people we really value that we work with? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mark? Well, um, I think while so much in the world was on hold, uh, the TV industry went through a massive transformation. We almost have just come out the other side of the tunnel. Um, and when we do, it's a very different world that was predicted for many years, and now we're in it. I mean, personally, I discovered that we can operate as a global company. It's much easier if you're 
virtual shop as a global company, but that also means you need a bit more self-discipline about your own hours, because uh, you don't want to work 24 hours a day, which you can do if you operate as a global company. Yeah. That was for me. Yeah. Donna? Um, well, first of all, I just want to say, wow, it's great to see so many people in a room. Um, and it's, it's wonderful to be back, so, and, and well done for getting us together. And I know it's been a crazy, crazy weekend for everyone involved, so, and those who made it, great, and those watching at home, also great. Um, I would say this has been kind of the great equalizer, in a way. Um, it's really opened up, at least from a business perspective, and then we can talk a little bit about the creative perspective. Um, it's, it's broken down these barriers and the, you know, the titles that sometimes we hide behind and the um, slew of uh, you know, assistants and, and people that you need to kind of get your job done. I mean, I probably have the WhatsApp numbers of half the people in this room right now. Um, and that's something, you know, that access, that unmediated access that we all now have to each other and the ability to jump on a Zoom call, no matter where you are in the world, and work things out. And everybody's been made, making themselves available, accessible. And also, it, it just feels like the world got so small. Um, you know, we're sitting here and the number one show in the world right now is Korean. I mean, and that's wonderful for all of us international storytellers, everybody that's here. I mean, that has happened. You know, we've come out the other side of this with that realization that this really is a global world and it took a global pandemic to figure it out. But so. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we've been put on the bench for 18 months and, 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 and all sorts of things have changed. It has been a period of anxiety, not just pandemic. We've had Black Lives Matter. We've had the rise of populism. We've had um, uh, all sorts of different areas of focus and interest groups come to the fore. And rightly, we've all had the time to focus on them and develop, almost distill down to the things that really matter. Mm. But alongside that, the business models have changed, haven't they? Because streamers have really made the most of this and everyone's pretty much watched just about everything that's possible uh, to see. Um, Roma, how do you think the business model of content creation and distribution has changed over the past 18 months alongside the pandemic? And how is that going to impact the future going forward? Well, I think the pandemic helped accelerate things that were already happening in the marketplace. We were already becoming more and more global. And you know, so many of us here are, are global television content people. But there's something about it that feels different. It was already moving into the arena where you could watch Lupin, you could watch um, something from Korea and feel very connected to it. But I think that step change of um, millions of people around the globe being at home and consuming so much content just overnight the growth happened on multiple platforms. So it's not just Netflix anymore, it's also Disney Plus. And then HBO uh, Max coming out in all these more branded um, specific platforms. So that's wonderful from a consumer point of view and from a storyteller point of view, uh, but hundreds and hundreds of shows, it's hard to know what to watch and the algorithms seem to uh, control what we know unless we're on social media all day. Uh, and for those of us with small children, being locked in a house, it was a gift, but I didn't watch as much television as my friends. So for me, you know, that shift has driven the shift in the business models. So as creators who are not the platform, um, you have to ask yourself, what value am I adding here? And it used to be that we could pull together resources from around the world and come up with a wonderful story idea and then sell it in pieces and ultimately create value through library. 
Um, I think in so many ways that's almost entirely disappeared. And, it, and it's coming back as a competitive advantage for some platforms who can't compete with a $17 billion a year acquisition budget. But it's really um, forced us to think about business models. And I, I'm curious what other people think. I think a lot of companies have been forced to be service producers. And I didn't come into this business to be a service producer um, and not create some value that's, that's bigger than just the number of hours I put in in a day. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, isn't it? You know, the, 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 the loss of, the, of holding on to IP uh, as, a, as a producer, in many cases. Roly, you've mm. spent many years co-producing, and I imagine mm. you're working with streamers and broadcasters, and um, exactly. the traditional business is fighting back with a lot more co-production and partnership as well, isn't it? How do you see this all shaking down, and what issues do you think need to be addressed to... Um, I, I feel that we still are maintaining two streams or, and two directions. One, of course, are the global streamers, and we are developing and we are expanding and we are producing for them. But there is another business which cannot be ignored because they still, at the end of the day, in a majority of the countries, are getting the eyeballs. And so we are very focused also on working in that area of co-productions. That's what I've built up all of the different companies that I've worked at, is how do you put those pieces together? How do you get that local DNA of the story that is gonna land for your anchor partner, wherever that anchor partner is, whether it's on the other side of the pond starting from the US or over here? And as producers who are here in this audience, I think first and foremost, the story that you are gonna to wanna to tell, you should really understand how you are going to anchor it and where are you going to anchor it and how does that narrative that you're developing actually allow you to anchor it in one place and then you build out the partnership with every other potential partner. And by the way, it could be a streamer who takes the rest of the world. So I again, I'm coming back to, I've never, seen this industry so explode in a really fantastic way. And there are so many opportunities. I would just advocate to young people who are producing, do stay focused. There's so much that I think you kind of get, you kind of lose that sense of the story. And if you do, then you are not going to keep what is exciting about that story. So focus. I, I stress that word with our team. I say that we have a lot of opportunities that we can do here. But if we don't create drama that can appeal in a local way, it will not allow itself to be global. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? And I know when we were speaking previously, we were talking about the importance of letting uh, distinct, discrete groups own their IP in order to build mm -hmm. um, value within their production companies in, and within their own. Uh, otherwise, if it's yeah. just being given away, these hubs of creativity won't be able to, to build, will they? Well, no, and I think it's, it's uh, you know, this is the opportunity, right? Is, is the pendulum swimming, swinging back to the value of an international partnership and, and a diverse partnership, maybe that's not international, but within communities, within your own place and culture. The UK, of course, has always had a better IP structure for creators than, than in the US um, or, or even in places like 
you know, other English speaking languages, um, markets. But for me, when we talk about, it's a strange segue into diversity, but when we talk about diversity and diverse voices, yet the business models still concentrate the money for content and the ownership of content and of IP in a fewer number of hands, is that really a, a sharing of power? If, if I get paid extremely well, that's great, right? You know, you should get paid for your voice and your unique voice. But if the business model is that the long tail ownership resides with a bigger company, then as a creator and a diverse creator, are you really shifting the power dynamic of society, which is, it sounds lofty, but I think television yeah. and content has the ability to do that if we all focus on doing it the best we can. So, uh, you know, to me, the, this uh, opportunity that Roll is talking about in leaning into partnerships and different structures and IP is also an opportunity of cutting creators and, and voices in in a real way to say, I'm not going to just pay you that when you finish spending that money, you're done. Um, but I'm actually going to make you a partner and an owner in your own voice. And that's how the world's going to change for the better. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dana, I know that you um, uh, handed your resignation in at the company that you're with um, earlier in the year uh, to move on and do something else. And I think that was very much um, positioned a, 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 about the sort of the excitement that you had for the opportunity going forward in terms of what's going to happen in content globally and particularly with your international experience and the fact that you worked across these markets. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about what you want to do in future and why you think now's the well, time to go, go it alone? Well, First of all, wow, um, it's a little embarrassing. like <laughs> that. But, um, but I think just like everybody here, um, it, there is a sense of, of newness, right? There's a sense of what was is not what is going to be. And it's both personal and global and from a storytelling perspective, certainly the business structure and models and the sheer number of outlets that we all have. Um, and I'm sure I'm not the only person that has gone through um, these kind of thoughts in the last year and a half. Everybody's like going like, yes. Because um, you know, th th what we just went through is one of those events that everybody kind of takes a step back, takes stock of their lives. That's certainly what happened to me on a personal level. But on a professional level, it, it just feels um, that there's so many opportunities out there. What I'm going to be doing is hopefully more of the same, um, probably, you know, based out of uh, Israel, but not necessarily. It just feels that for right now, where you are, where you physically reside is no longer a barrier. Um, the kind of storytelling that you want to tell or can you know, help facilitate others um, to tell is not necessarily linked to your home country and, and language. And those barriers are opening up and that's kind of what pushed me to make that yeah, personal decision. A good place to step into. How do you think the pandemic has changed storytelling and when you, if one was starting to, to imagine a, a future uh, that was about telling stories in an international way, what sort of stories do you think are going to be told and how does the balance between scripted and unscripted, how's that changed in the past couple of years and how will it change going forward do you well, think? I think first foremost, we should recognize the number of outlets that have joined since we last all met here. I mean, the sheer number of streamers and um, global streamers, local streamers, theme streamers, um, and the consolidate, the crazy consolidation that's going on right now in our industry. Um, this, this shift has, 
you know, has been rapid and it takes a lot to wrap your head around, but it's certainly one that offers great opportunity. Um, one of those that we've seen is um, the switch between scripted and non-scripted and how non-scripted now plays as well and can really get people behind a narrative experience that usually before you needed a, a scriptwriter. Um, now it turns out, you know, we have a saying, I mean, the best stories are the real life ones. I mean, the, the unbelievable things that really happen. So Tiger King has certainly proven that, you know, there, there's numerous, numerous other examples of that. Um, it's quicker to produce, usually. It's cheaper to produce. Um, and if it plays out and resonates and, and you're creating, you know, a storytelling experience, then absolutely. I think we all need to embrace that as well. A lot of us come from the scripted side, but I think it's a great opportunity to go into non-scripted as well. Yeah, and there was a, there was a sort of a, a, a thought that the mood was going to be towards a sort of a lighter style of programming, wasn't there? And then we got Squid Game. So how does that work out? But we also got Ted Lasso. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it does matter. I, I could t the only thing, I, I remember when this all started and we spent the first like two, three months kind of figuring out how to tell stories in the pandemic. And we were all like, do we, you know, actors are going to wear masks and are we going to tell these stories that take place in a room where people haven't. And I, the, the one thing I can categorically say, and I don't like to say anything categorically because this business is nothing but if not full of surprises and what was right yesterday is not going to be right tomorrow. Uh, the one thing we're not, wanting to see is COVID stories, like lockdown stories. <laughs> those are, yeah, those are not coming back. But you know, it's interesting. I think the unscripted storytelling, um, certainly in our experience and, and what we're creating and selling, but also what we're watching, it's, it's becoming a lot more like scripted in the sense that it's, it's very crafted, it's very narrative driven in a way that five years ago, 10 years ago, um, it wasn't. And, and we're finding the budgets are going up. They're not scripted budgets by any extent, but they are certainly not the unscripted budgets of five years ago. And, and looking for that quality of, of filmmaking really, and storytelling that's very narrative and um, very, in depth in a way. I mean, leave aside if you're on the ground in Afghanistan or, or, or more a timely topic where you have to move fast with documentary, but um, Unscripted is becoming very narrative. It's very much about immersing yourself in a story for some of the, the newer series, which I think is exciting. Ro McCarner, Rola Bauer, Wayne Garvey, Mark Oliver and Dana Stern speaking to David Jenkinson as part of C21's Content London. You can hear the full version of that session by tuning into the weekly review show on our C21 FM internet radio station or, if you're a C21 Pro subscriber, watch the video on our site. BBC Director of Drama Piers Wenger spoke to Stephen Armstrong about the UK Public Broadcasters commissioning strategy and upcoming Slate. We, we all know about COVID and we all know about how that has impacted uh, production. And, you know, we have had a, uh, a, a more discreet drama slate this year than, than we, we had planned to, and a very, very rich one next year. But this year, I think we've had, you know, we've, we've had some really um, powerful pieces that have been, you know, big ratings busting, kind of, you know, uh, stories, um, you know, so The Serpent, Bloodlands, Line of Duty, Time and Vigil, all, all, all really kind of uh, delivered in, in sort of audience terms. Um, but, you know, what we, what we, you know, what we pride ourselves on most is having, having range. 
So whilst, you know, whilst we've had a lot of, of really kind of powerful thrillers this year, I'm really looking forward to next year when we'll still have those, those sort of elevated thrillers, but alongside pieces like This Is Gonna Hurt, you know, or The, or the Responder or Chloe, you know, or Rogue Heroes, pieces that are very, you know, very authored and, and kind of sit in a genre of their own. So obviously, <laughs> the last time I sat on this stage with you was a couple of years ago, things have changed since then. Mm. What, has, what effects has the pandemic had on your professional life I, in terms of what you've done and what you're about to do? Well, um, I mean, it, it's, it's changed everything forever, I think. Um, you know, I think certainly in terms of, you know, what we commission, the fact that for 18 months, you know, people were trapped in their own homes and were able to access a, a kind of huge array of content and a huge amount of content through, you know, through the, through, through the, 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 the number of platforms that are now available to, to people alongside the, the traditional uh, broadcasters. So, you know, I think in terms of what we're, what we're commissioning, um, you know, we, we, it just has to be extraordinary, which, which isn't an easy, you know, it, it, it isn't an easy thing for producers to hear because the competition for talent is, is so great and the competition for IP is, is so great. But when I say it has to be extraordinary, I don't mean it has to be big. You know, it can be big, but it really, it's about, it's about, it's about that kind of um, a unique tone of voice or having something to say that isn't being said elsewhere. So it can be really, really small and, 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 and intimate. Um, but, you know, what, what you really need is to make sure that, it, you know, for it to work on the BBC, and this isn't going to be true of everywhere, but that it, it is doing something that is going to surprise people. Now, I was going to mention the Brexit question a little further down. But in fact, we do have a question already come in um, from Anonymous. Uh, which I think links into it uh, in a way, which is, are you open to meeting new producers, especially non-Brits? Uh, or should we come to you with a local producer you know, or doesn't it matter? And I suppose that also opens up that thing, is how are you finding doing business outside the shores of this island? Well, we, um, you know, we do a lot of business outside of the UK, but we are, you know, we are primarily buying off British producers um, and and. and uh, primarily in English language content. So it's sort of British stories for British audiences. You know, that is the sort of, um, you know, that is the overall point and purpose of, of, of BBC drama. But, you know, I think that we, um, you know, we know that audiences are also, you know, British audiences are also curious about stories that aren't taking place within their own shores. The Serpent took place a long time ago and in, 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 in a very far off country. And um, so, I think, you know, the, what we, you know, you could look at it a different way and say, well, our, our, our main aim is to give the licence fee payer, you know, a story that they, tell them the story that they're going to be really, they're going to really enjoy to tell them. And that, and that is probably going to be because they haven't heard it before. And so I think, you know, expanding the range of what we do to include stories outside of the UK is important, but I think there would need to be a British storyteller or a British producer sort of in the mix somewhere. So I'm I'm really open to conversations about stories that are outside the UK, but but you know there does need to be a, a kind of British element in it to make it to make it kind of feel um, right for us to go into it. 
And there, there's an example I've just seen, which actually isn't, isn't, we're not going to look at today, so that's a bit mean on everybody. But um, it, it, this may also look overseas, working overseas, working with overseas uh, co-producers and so forth, is mm. um, The Tourist, which is the um, Harry and Jack Williams and Jamie Dornan that I, when I saw that, those names, I thought it was going to be serial killer. But it starts off with um, 10 minutes worth of duel as an articulated lorry chases someone across the outback. Yeah. So that's a huge cinematic piece of work. Presumably that requires co-production money, that requires um, allegiances. Yes. Um, well, that is made, that's being made in partnership with HBO Max. Um, and, um, you know, but we're also co-producing a piece called Crossfire with um, TVE, which is a Spanish free-to-air broadcaster. So, you know, I think that there are obviously the big players, there are the, the, big, the big streaming platforms, but there are also platforms like Stan, you know, the Australian streaming platform, that, you know, that there's, you know, um, AMC streaming platform. I think, I think there, is a, there are opportunities that we, that are going to become more important more and more important for the BBC to be able to find other partners outside of those big streaming platforms who always, you know, or not always, but for the most part, want to control worldwide rights. And, you know, and, and that to us is not, you know, that is the beauty of coming to the, bringing your work to the BBC because we're, we just take the UK and we pay, you know, we pay well to take the, you know, to be able to show the piece here for, for, for a period. Um, but, you know... Often that is a deal breaker for for for, uh, for for the big SBODs, particularly in the bigger budget pieces. Which is why I think we're interested in fostering more and more relationships with those with with you know with, with streaming platforms that are slightly more local or don't have that same um, you know don't have that same urgency around controlling all rights. Um, and there's a question here, which um, I guess partly because the BBC has. You have studios, you have America and so forth. And one of the questions is, do you have synergy with developing projects with BBC America? Maybe for the international crowd, it's worth explaining how BBC America and BBC do or don't collaborate. Yeah, so, so I mean, we, we work with um, BBC America, but in, you know, there, there isn't a... Um, you know, there isn't an automatic assumption that everything that we make will be shown on BBC America, partly because producers own their rights. So they just, we just, you know, when we commission something, it just allows us to show it in the UK. Now, a producer can go out and, and sell to BBC America, and Killing Eve is a, is a great example of that. Also, Doctor Who is shown, you know, it has its, its premiere window in, the, in North America on, on BBC America. So we sort of work with them rather like we work with most of our other partners. There's not, there's not a... There's not a sort of bound-in relationship between the two. And there's a question just come in, which I think leads on to something I was going to ask anyway. The, the, the question that, that's come in, a lot anonymous here. Um, is the remit of inform, educate and entertain still the driving principle of the BBC? Which I was going to ask you as well. We were talking about, um, for instance, Small Axe. When I interviewed Steve McQueen, he wanted Small Axe to be on the BBC because of the nature of the BBC in British culture. For him... As a black screenwriter, it was that was where those shows needed to be. We've since we last all gathered in this room. We've had the summer of Black Lives Matter. We've had a lot of questions about diversity. Mm. How has the BBC responded? What's your mission? You inform, educate, entertain, but also diversity mission that the BBC fulfills. Okay, well, I think there's two different questions within that. There's there's you know there's the Rethian values which are still at the heart of everything we do. So that's a simple that's a simple yes. You know, I guess um, across our slate there are some slates that entertain more than they educate and, and, and some which you know which probably educate more than they, they entertain. But it's you know 
that's that's the beauty of the BBC. We, you know, we, we are a broad church and and can meet, you know have uh, those values are enshrined in different pieces of work in different in different ways. You know, in terms of in terms of diversity, I think that um, you know we are looking at diversity of all types. You know, um, obviously last year. Um, was was you know the year of Black Lives Matter, and you know we had some good pieces of work already in the pipeline that that, that came to air last year, from I May Destroy to Small Acts to Sitting in Limbo to Noughts and Crosses, and I'm I'm really happy to say we're you know we're continuing working with with many of those same um, writers, but I think um, and filmmakers, but but you know without a doubt what as a team we you know really really felt very motivated around was 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 expanding that pool you know and and you know we have pieces you know coming up um you know we're going to see a clip shortly of, of, of girl before which is a great example of how you know of how we're really improving on-screen diversity but but also in in, ter- in in the writers that we're you know that we're that we're working with um and um we we have um, a piece called Grime Kids from Teresa Rococo and a piece called Wahala, both of both of both of from whom were, you know, both of which were written by Teresa, who who had quite a few had quite, had quite a few projects on our slate. But you know, I, I really had to ask myself the question: is why isn't she getting them made? And you know, I think that was all about accepting that 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 the black and ethnic minority writers haven't haven't got the same history of, of being of being proven you know the same that, that they just don't have the same number of produced credits so we needed to take active steps to to change that and to make sure that it was a level playing field in terms of giving people the chance and the chance not just to succeed but the chance to you know the, the right to fail in the way that many writers fail you know and i think that's where we just needed to uh we needed to feel more confident about about risk, really, and, and, and take more risks on writers who hadn't got lots and lots of screen credits because within that there was an inbuilt lack of diversity because you just perpetuate, the, you know, you just end up sustaining the same talent pool rather than opening it up. And so that's what we've really tried to do. We've got a brilliant piece of work. I think my, kind of one of my favourite things is a, a commissioner coming up um, in the new year called Superho. Which is Nicole Leckie's um, adaptation. It's amazing. It started life as a one-woman show at the Royal Court, and um, Nicole played the lead, and she wrote it, um, and she wrote the music for it, and she's done the same for the um, for the for the TV show. And you know the the, the 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 songs and the musical sequences in that show are amazing. You know, properly. You know, it's directed by Dawn Shadforth, who directed lots of brilliant promos, lots of work with Kylie Minogue, and she's brought a real pop aesthetic to it. But it also tells a really powerful story about a young woman who's trying to make her way in the music industry. And, you know, in order to raise her profile, she she befriends an influencer who who is going to help her uh, raise her profile on social media but actually what she gets drawn into is a world where you know which highlights the the kind of fine line between being an influencer and and you know in this case being a sex worker so it's sort of you know it's 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 a sort of it's a powerful and at times you know gritty story but it is also full of joy and 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 and, and sort of you know great musical set pieces. So tell us a bit about The Girl Before. It um, is a, based on a novel. It's an adaptation um, of a novel by J.P. 
Delaney of the same name. He has adapted it alongside um, Marissa Lestrade, who, who's, who's co-written it with him. It obviously stars uh, Gugu and Bartiraw, David Yellowo, Jessica Plummer, um, and you know it's 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 a it's a it's an elevated thriller about um, about a house um, and um, the man who built the house, who, who's played by David, and you know. And, 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 the, and the lives of the women who end up living there. And I won't say any more than that because it will be kind of spoilers. But, but it's, it's, you know, it's a, ve- it's a different kind of, of, of very mainstream thriller. You know, it, it feels elevated. And there is, a, as you can see, it's directed by Lisa Brawlman, who, who, who we knew from Killing Eve, and, and who, who has given it a kind of gloss that, um, that I think makes it feel like a real treat. But it still feels like a very British story with, we you know, with great on-screen diversity. It feels like there's a group of uh, writers and directors, anyway, who have huge cinematic ambitions, who, who you're working with. And I, I mean, I think it's not just the BBC. I can see this, this cropping up. You can see it on Channel 4, you can see it on Sky. But there does appear to be a new approach to television, whether that's because they can't, because cinema's not interested, or whether TV's fighting back against, as you said, people at home being used to watching lots of huge... Yeah. shows what's what's happening in that well I, I think it sort of goes back to that thing that I was sort of saying at the beginning that we just we just we have to strive for the extraordinary you know and um, you know that 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 can come through the direction or it can come through the, the cast you have attached but I think that that it's going to get you know in a world where we're you know we're not just in the business of linear broadcasting we are you know we have we have iPlayer which is a very important portal for you know for audiences to to sort of access our content but what it doesn't have is a natural footfall which um you know which obviously bbc one does and so we're you know we're we're projecting ourselves into a world where you need you need to you need to grab people's attention and you need to you know you need to do that to get them to iplayer because they're not just necessarily going to just happen upon it in the way that they might have turned on BBC One on the Sunday night in the past and, and found The Girl Before. So, you know, with The Girl Before, we thought there was a really kind of talkable conceit there. It's, it's about, you know, two women who look similar, who seem to be looking around the same house and then it flips and you realise that actually they're, they are looking around the same house, but they're in two different time frames. And what has happened to, what has happened to the one in the earlier time frame? And that's where the, the kind of thriller kicks in. And, you know, by, by casting... Gugu by casting David, you know, it, 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 it made it more distinctive because, because they are a predominantly black cast and that, that you know, that just feels both important but also it, it, it's something that we haven't seen on British TV screens, you know, enough in, in that kind of very mainstream sort of space. Um, but, you know, the, so, the, so what we've ended up with, I think, with, you know, with Girl Before is something that is a very, is a straightforward, great pot boiler. It's a straightforward thriller, but it has an elevated and talkable feel. And, you know, the, you know, the tourists, likewise, that is a, that is a big, it's a kind of TV blockbuster. But I don't, I sort of, you know, I, I do think it's important to sort of say that as a public service broadcaster, it is about, it is about scale and it is about elevation but, but, but not exclusively so. And, you know, you, you sort of mentioned The Responder and, you know, that, that, is, a, that is a cop show. You could call it a thriller, I suppose. But it's, it's, it's taking a very different approach to 
uh, to, 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 to the world of police than, than, you know, than any other kind of police show you're likely to see next year. You know, it's, it's not a procedural. It's really, at its heart, a story about a, a man, a policeman, who is a kind of beat responder in, in a kind of tough part of Liverpool. You know, it's, it's set over, over five night shifts. It charts his declining mental health. So, you know, there's a, there's a sort of really strong, you know, public service story to tell there as well. But it is, you know, it has a, it does have a, you know, it does have a cinematic language to that and a great performance by Martin Freeman at the centre of it. But it's not, you know, I, 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 it would be a bad day when the BBC would, were just about making glossy elevated thrillers like Girl Before and Taurus. They're incredibly important to audiences because they are, you know, because they are, great British stories written by great British talent featuring great British actors but they are not they're not all the audience wants and I think I think it's interesting if you look at one of our biggest rated shows this year Time you know by Jimmy McGovern starring Stephen Graham and, and Sean Bean that is again that isn't a that isn't a conventional thriller it's not you know it's not a whodunit um, but it, it manages to be, be gripping all the same by being you know, about something that feels very important when you're watching, you feel like it's a story that really matters because it's, it's, it's actually shining a light on something that's, you know, that's very much going on in the here, here and now, but which hasn't necessarily been well documented on screen in documentary or, or drama, um, but with two towering performances at the heart of it. And, and, and the same is true with Responder. These are kind of, you know, these are kind of urgent stories about, about, about people you know, caught in, 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 in the world now, in a kind of post-COVID world, uh, struggling to, to kind of make sense of, of what society now looks like. And, and the same is true, this is going to hurt, although again, tonally, it's very different. But, you know, it's about a, an NHS doctor struggling with the pressures of, 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 of working within the with an under, underfunded NHS and, and dealing with, the, with, with his own mental health issues as a result. So, you know, we, we, we want, you know, it's our job to also really get under the skin of what's going on in, in Britain and, you know, across our slate. I'm, I'm, I'm always striving to keep that balance between great entertainment and also pieces that are, are really, really purposeful. And I guess that's where you go back to the, the Rethian values of, of doing, of doing, you know, of, of trying to stick to those, but stick to those across the slate. And um, I note that both of those, that Responder and This Is Going To Hurt, are written not by professional TV writers per se. One's written mm. by a former police mm. officer and one is written by a former junior doctor. That's right, yeah. So how do they... And there is a question here which <laughs> sort of leads to that as well, from, um, also from Anonymous, who is busy... Um, would you consider a project before script is written based on a pitch deck and attachment? So if you're getting people coming to you who aren't established TV writers, if you're getting, if you're getting this question, how do you consider projects? What, what, what is the route to you? Sure. Well, it's the, it's the route that it's always been. You know, um, so we, 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 will, we often hear pitches for, for stories that are not scripts. We don't just sort of passively receive scripts. One of the things that makes the BBC, you know, have a unique role in, in, in the kind of British landscape is that we spend a lot of money on development. And sometimes that frustrates people because, you know, it makes us slower, but it does mean that we are supporting writers and creativity that others won't and giving, giving writers and producers a shot 
at, at, at least getting their idea to script stage. Um, you know, if, it, if it's not an obvious slam dunk, you know, we will we'll be really speculative about what we develop. Um, but in terms of the process, you know, we, we often hear pitches. They are just often, they're often ideas or we'll, we'll be sent pitches or decks. Um, and, you know, uh, there, are, there are six commissioning editors on my, on my team and um, some of them commissioned for particular parts of the, of the UK, Scotland, Northern Ireland and, and, and Wales. But, you know, they, they're, they're really there because they have great taste and because they really know good writing when they see it and um, because they really respect producers and the work that they do. And so really anything, any new work that gets commissioned by the Department for Development will be commissioned by them and I, and I don't commission development. But once, once, you know, once a script has been written, it will then come to me and, I'll, and I will, you know, and I will review and discuss and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk as a team about the pieces that we actually want to commit to for production purposes. And there's a question here, which again, actually is one I was going to ask as well, which is what do you think the BBC drama slate is currently missing? Which I suppose this question is, what are you looking for right now? Um, I mean, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not sort of dodging the question. <laughs> you know, other than to say, you know, we're looking for 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 the extraordinary, and um, and you know that the extraordinary can be landed in, in in many different ways. It doesn't have to be a big, high budget idea. It can be a really small but very distinctive, you know, voice and, and story, or it can be about a piece of cast, or it can be about a director. So there are lots of, but it, I think we, you know, we're just very aware that that. We need to build pieces that are really going to, to stand out. And also, you know, keenly aware that sometimes, you know, the, you know, and, and kind of more often than not, the pieces that really endure in, in the public's imagination are the ones that you wouldn't necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily have expected, like Time, for example, is, is, you know. Um, and the responder, you know, is, and who knows how that piece will do, but it started life as a, you know, as backing, by back, you know, as backing a, a writer who'd come through BBC Writers' Room. Um, and so that's a very sort of long-winded way of saying we are looking for stuff that is, 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 not, is not expected, that, that feels like it's really going to stand out in the crowd. It's the kind of idea that you might not be able to get others to take a chance on. Um, but those are the pieces that can excite us, but we're sort of more mindful than ever of how we need to build those pieces to make sure that, that, they, are, that they are noisy enough to get noticed by audiences who won't automatically come across them on. Um, I suppose period drama is quite a good thing to look at in that regard, because probably growing up, I tended to think of BBC period drama yeah. as being Andrew Davis, Frox Bonnets and um, classic Jane Austen yeah. adaptations. But realistically, period... <laughs> Just got a question. Literally this second, do you agree mm. that period dramas are harder to get made because of the expense, or is that not a consideration if the story is good enough? And bang into the period drama question. But I've also noticed that you, you, you've been commissioning a lot of um, Sarah Soleimani period drama with Woodley Road, Emily Mortimer. Um, mm. There's a lot of very interesting uh, ways in which you consider period. And I wanted yeah. to talk a bit to that, which would also probably lead us into the final clip, which is the, girl um, sorry, the British Scandal. Yeah. Is, yeah. So a lot of things to, to sort of unpack there. Yes, the BBC traditionally was the home of the, of the classic adaptation, and that's where period drama tended to sort of begin and end. Um, but I think, you know, period dramas are expensive to make, but that doesn't, you know, you know, 
and lots of different kinds of drama is expensive. So that's, that's not really the obstacle. But what we want to be sure about with anything that we commission that is a period story is that it is going to feel exciting to enough people. You know, it can't just be drama that your mum would watch. You know, no disrespect to anyone's mums. Um, but, you know, so, so in terms of Ridley Road, which is the Sarah Soleimani piece that you mentioned, that was a true, you know, it was sort of inspired by a true story, um, but it was about the rise of fascism in, in, in East London during the 1960s. And, you know, it, it, it shone a light onto, onto, you know, a story that, that, you know, has an unfortunate relevance today. And looked at the, looked at looked at you know the kind of you know cultural and social environment in which in which fascism you know was growing at that at that time as well as telling a great you know a great story about a young a young woman who was you know who who, who found um, her purpose through through sort of going undercover to to sort of to fight fascism um, but you know, gentleman Jack Sally Wainwright's amazing um, you know uh, story of Anne Lister. Um, which we, we make with HBO um, about a, a same-sex relationship, the first you know open lesbian couple in you know that uh, that 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 we've certainly come across in 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 sort of British history, um, and you know Sally has has just finished work on season two of that, and so that will be coming back next year. So so you know I guess it's it's about how do you tell a story that isn't just about frocks and bonnets, that is about something that's going to feel relevant to, to audiences now and be able to bring audiences together to make a big to make a big hit. And you know we we've, we've sort of got. Um, you know, two two other period dramas that 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 are, ma are massively sort of mould breaking, but I think will will you know as Peaky Blinders did sort of you know feel feel relevant to a wider audience and hopefully a younger audience. We have Shane Meadows working on his uh, story Gallows Pole, which is set in 18th century Yorkshire, pre just just in the moment before the Industrial Revolution, is about a, a kind of rural gang who counterfeit money, and it's one of the you know it's 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 um, a big kind of crime story, but told from a very characterful perspective. And we also have um, The English by Hugo Blick, starring Emily Blunt, which is, you know, um, a very kind of authored account of uh, all the terrible things that the English did in America, it, you know, in, in, the, in the 19th century. And, um, and, you know, actually looks at the, the role we played in, in, in sort of in, in, in building, you know, America, you know, um, and and so so they're both sort of telling stories that that might otherwise, you know, have have, have never been have, have never been shown on screen, but in, in in really authored ways. So yeah, it's about it's about a sideways look at period, not not necessarily doing the obvious. BBC Director of Drama Piers Wenger speaking with Stephen Armstrong as part of C21's Content London. Netflix, Vice President of Original Series Anne Mensa, plus UK Series Managers Lindsay Salt, Sophie Klein and Tom Lyons spoke to Emma Bullimore about their commissioning strategies and upcoming slate. And thank you so much for being here. And I know it's been a busy, successful three years or so, establishing Almost. your team and your slate. What's it been like establishing Netflix's presence in the UK in the way that you have? I don't know if we've established it we've definitely grown it but we you know to come to something that was already so successful like you know in many ways afterlife sort of sums up what i think we should be doing in the uk so you know 
it's utterly moving, it's utterly truthful and authentic to a sort of UK experience, um, liberal amount of swearing and some edginess. Um, but that idea of sort of emotional truth mixed with sort of you know, a real authored voice, and we came into that, that was already there, and the crown was already there, and sex education that Sophie looks after was already there. So it was just building on success. Um, so you know, it's been a difficult year for the whole industry, but we've been working with these incredible people that have just sort of like swung for the hills and knocked it out of the park again and again and again. So when the slate like kicks in on screen next year, you sort of feel like, okay, we've taken what was there and built upon it in this amazing way. So yeah, in a funny old way, people keep saying, oh, you started something in the UK, but I think there was something already. I mean, Sophie's been working in the UK for like a long time. So there was something already here. And the question was, could we could we build upon it? Could we dig in deeper? And then also, could we be part of the industry? Because I think there's this, you know, there's lots of different ways that you can be a streamer. Um, but we just took this philosophy that we wanted to be complementary to what was already there because we love what the UK stands for. And I think that that's what we've been doing quite a lot of as well, is not just working with amazing talent on shows, but trying to make sure that we're part of the industry. And obviously Netflix is so global, but why is it important to you to champion UK talent in the way that you do? Because UK talent is the best. Am I allowed to say that? I don't know. Like all the people who are not actually British, you're also good. But, <laughs> but, you know, but I just think, I mean, it's why so many people are shooting here. You know, because you know, we have amazing crews. We have amazing producers. Our independent production company system just leads to incredible innovation. Um, I just get, I get, genuinely get excited about the potential. Like, I just don't even think we've like reached it. I mean, and I think there's you know, tons of challenges and loads of you know, supply issues among people and just the industry as a whole. But actually, it's still like the best place to be working. And so that's what we've been able to play with. So it's, yeah, that's why, that's why we're here. And also to sort of serve a UK membership for Netflix so that you know, people, that the idea behind Netflix is that you can tell stories from anywhere to everyone. But also, I think there's something about telling authentically British stories to our members. And Tom, I'm sure there's a, a lot of people in the room who would love to know sort of the secret to a Netflix commission. But I, I know that you want conversation starters. That is something you can say, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think the idea of there being like a secret and a, a formula is probably not there. There's like an alchemy almost to it. But what we look for, I guess, is as Anne says, we're like, we're the UK content team. So first and foremost for us is, is British content. And so I think often we can get trapped in that local and global conversation and in fact, for us, it's UK first, and we are confident that if shows are going to be big in the UK, they will travel globally. And so it's having that specificity and having that kind of real cultural specificity, the, the specificity of voice that British writers bring, and that being the kind of superstar, and then taking the kind of principles of what makes amazing British TV and just sometimes kind of supercharging it or elevating it or finding just a way to kind of really push it. And I think the other thing that's crucial for us is variety. So it's just trying to find something that does something different all the time and balance that across a slate because it's really fun because we, we are across lots of different genres, including comedy and drama. So just having that kind of balance of lots of different shows like Harlan Coben, Stay Close being the first one that we're kind of doing at the end of this year. But then you've got Rowan Atkinson's Almost Silent Comedy you know, there are huge differences there and that's super exciting. So that variety, that British specificity, 
and then also things that will spark conversation and kind of help to push conversation forward. So it's kind of, yeah, I think shows that people will really love passionately and then speak about loudly are probably the kind of things we're looking for. And just to jump in and explain for people who don't really know us how we work, because I always know that's probably useful, because um, our titles don't really tell anybody anything about how we actually work. Um, so Tom is head of development, um, because we felt that it was important to have a sort of proper development culture within the team. So Tom leads that, and then the rest of us are execs working on shows. So even though we also commission, and the joy of Netflix is that any person in the team can commission. It's not really about me at all. It's about all of the team, and there's 10 of us in total. This is just a small, tiny snapshot of the entire team. Anybody can commission, but Tom may be your first port of call in terms of new conversations. And I know you also wanted to stress that you don't want 100 Bridgertons or 100 Squid Games being pitched to you. It's about unique stories. I do one Squid Game. Can we have one <laughs> Squid Game? It's like one Squid Game. And maybe a little bit of a Bridgerton on the side, but yeah, not loads of them. Yeah, no, it's that, it's that variety thing. It's, you know, you kind of want to find that balance because I think, I think people can sometimes assume we're less commercial than we are. And I think for every... For every house of cards, there's also a virgin river. And it's kind of finding those shows that lots of, you know, you don't want to watch the same thing necessarily on a Monday as you do on a Friday night or on a Sunday. And so it's finding that kind of different rhythm of shows and, and that real breadth of, of just kind of lots of exciting different shows. And so it's never that we're necessarily looking for that specific genre right now. It's just always looking for kind of a real uh, sweep of different stories. There's a question here on the app. Would you work, for example, with a non-British writer if the project itself felt intrinsically UK? How, how British does it have to be, I suppose, is the question. I think, because I, I was trying to be like super straight up rather than fudge it with people, like you just have to question why. So, if it, so we, we are working with non-British writers. So it's not, there's never a no, there's never a never. Um, it's just... If it's a non-British writer and a non-British company writing something in the UK, for me, it would lack authenticity, probably, possibly, which doesn't mean we wouldn't look at it, but I would just, I, I just whoever was going to send that in, I would look at themselves in the mirror and they'll go, just the why of it, which genuinely, there's lit, what I love about Netflix is there's no rules, like, and there's, so there's, no, there's never a no to anything, but there's just a, really? Like, <laughs> um, and we try not to develop very much. Because what we want is to, we want to work with amazing creators. And my belief is that when you say to somebody who's amazing, we really mean it, you've got to mean it. So we're more likely to say no up front than take loads of stuff into development. So we have a tiny development slate um, because we want to be open and honest to either things suddenly coming in fully formed or to um, be able to say to people, we really do mean it when we say, you know, if the script works, we will commission this. And the other thing to note is that the commissioning power sits with us in the UK. Like, we're not referring to anybody. Obviously, you know, I report to Bella, um, and we talk all the time about everything we're doing, and the team as a whole talks all the time, but it's not a permission culture at Netflix. It's a go-do-it-change-the-world culture, which I just think really massively empowers us as a team in the UK, and it's why we've been able to move so quickly. It's why we've got so much coming out next year. And why we have variety, hopefully, across yeah. our site, because... Everyone has different tastes and different things that they're interested in. There's definitely stuff that you've commissioned that I was like, really? <laughs> You'd be like, no way. I'd be like, yes. And then it's really good, so it's yeah. fine. I was wrong. 
Let's talk about some commissions, shall we? Let's talk about some of the announcements because there's so many exciting things to talk about. Sophie, I'm going to start with you, if that's okay. What can you tell me about Supercell? So Supercell is from Rapman, who you might know from Blue Story or prior to that, Shiro's story. And um, we just think he's such an exciting talent and we were dying to work with him. And he came to us uh, with a show and it's about an ordinary group of people in South London that suddenly develop superpowers. The one thing they have in common is that they're all black. So that you see them navigating their lives and kind of trying to live their lives, but also having these powers get in the way, but also help them at all, uh, you know, under the, the uh, idea that there might be something else at play. And so they all must come together to save the world, essentially. And, um, but it's very specific to South London. It's, it's, a, it's a superhero show, as you know it, but very specific to the UK as well. And we're just really excited because you have Ratman's authentic voice really feeding into it and driving the narrative of the show. So is that what appealed, that kind of authenticity and, and specificity as well? Yeah, absolutely. And just his unique lens into the world. Like, we think that he just has such an amazing voice. He, he really balances humor and heart, but there's always real stakes to his stories. And just seeing that through the lens of South London as well was just really, really exciting to us and felt really fresh and, and interesting. And what, what stage are we at with that at the moment? Uh, we're, still, we're still in the development phase, but we are moving towards production and, uh, eventually. Uh, yeah. But we're so excited with the scripts, and it's just... It's a really, really, really fun show, and um, we just can't wait to, to see it come to screen. Lindsay, if I said to you, fuck it, bucket, what would you say? <laughs> I'd say, excuse me? No, I'd say um, this is another commission that we're very pleased to announce. Uh, it's from Left Bank Pictures. Uh, essentially, it's about a 17-year-old girl uh, who's been in hospital recovering from a, stint, a long stint of anorexia, and she's returning back to sixth form and uh, realising that all of her friends have sort of moved on and had these experiences that she's never had. So it's really a series about charting her, regaining her self-confidence and um, and having some fun with it and saying fuck it and having a fuck it bucket. Uh, and essentially the reason why we commissioned this was truthfully the script came in by a writer called Ripley Parker. She is brand new. Uh, and it just knocked us for six, I think it's fair to say. Her voice was just so unique. There's a kindness, there's a humour, there's just... I mean, she's also super young. It seems, like, crazily impressive, but it's just, yeah, it was a script that knocked it out of the park. So, yeah. And I love the fact that, basically, you know, Raps isn't brand new because he's made a feature film. Ripley is super brand new. Like, it shows the sort of breadth of what we can do. So, you know, we're working with Joe Cornish, we're working with Rowan Atkinson, we're working with this, like, proper established titans of the UK industry, but we're all, we've also got tons of space for the new, if they've got a really unique perspective and voice. You know, and both Raps and Ripley are, are completely different, but really both muscular in their own spaces, and that's what's exciting, because we, we then can just stand behind their voices and just go, OK, you go do you. Like, you know, with Rap, Ratman is writing all episodes of Supercell, and he's directing you know, a block of it, and you just go, okay, you do what you do brilliantly, because we're here for that. Yeah, and there's a real clarity of vision behind what he wants to do, and that was one of the things that really attracted us to the project, is that he came to us and he had a clear vision, not only of what will be on the page, but how he's going to bring it to life, and that was really exciting for us. And what can you tell me about Eric? Actually, I was just suddenly realizing there's like a 
it's, there's a, obviously a theme about having lunch with somebody and then just going, I really love that idea. <laughs> so that's what we did with Ratman. We had lunch with him and we were like, oh my God, we really love that idea. And then I was uh, privileged enough to have lunch with Abby Morgan, who is obviously a genius. And she started talking to me about a show that she described as Marriage Story Meets the Muppet, which was about a child who goes missing and a father who goes in search of that child. But had this child has been has an imaginary friend and the imaginary friend lives under his bed and is a big monster and the father starts this so it's a thriller but with a big puppet in the middle of it um and it's hard to describe but it is so beautiful on the page because it's about the things that are it um children tell you that you don't always hear and the grief a father will go through if he feels that he said, you know, he said to this child, you walk to school by yourself. And my son's seven. And the, what, the idea that your child goes missing and the pain that that would then cause. And so to have somebody of Abby's caliber look into that emotional truth at the same time as running a thriller through it, it was, you know, it was, un I mean, I will never do it justice. She was so compelling that I just spent a lot of time going, please, can we do that? Please, can we do that? Please, can we do that? And um, Abby's working with Sister Pictures, who are also unbelievably brilliant, and came back and said, would you like to do it? And we were just like, uh-huh, yes. So. I can't wait to see that. Honestly, it gives you, it gives you chills. It's, it's also, um, it's uh, set in New York in the 1980s, so it's also a picture of a time and place that's so delicately woven that it just, it's, the script breathe. They, they, they just come to life on the page. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. There are quite a few questions here about uh, rights, about producers having final cut, about how you work with teams. Tom, do you want to talk a little bit about that, about, about rights and about producers and how you work with teams once you commission something? Yeah, sure. I mean, like to go back to something Anne said, it's about just kind of working with brilliant people. And I think that's, that's true of the writers and the talent, but that's also true of the producers and us trying not to get in the way of that and just trying to let producers in the UK do their thing and do it brilliantly. So I think we want to just be supportive of that rather than kind of obstruct or get in the way of that generally. Um, and on the rights, do you, what well, do you mean about the rights? There's a few here, some people saying, um, uh, how are Netflix structuring their system to work with indie producers and to let them share in intellectual property? Someone else talking about pre-buying UK rights. So to jump in, because I'm a little bit of a control freak, but, <laughs> um, but just um, we will do we do every type of deal under the sun. Everybody always thinks that we buy all rights, and we just don't. We there's a whole gamut of license to. Um, fully uh, fully owned. There we co-produce through our team as well. Tom runs that as well. So the, every single thing is up for discussion. So we, there's there's no set way to work with us at Netflix. We try and be flexible to the project and you know create create the the sort of contractual infrastructure and the financial infrastructure that best benefits that project. I think that's really important to know. Um, a question here about. Can diversity sometimes be overly urban London focused? What reach and desire do you have in terms of representing regional voices? Yeah, I think diversity is a very big catch-all word and it has lots of different ways that you can interface with it and interact with it. And, and I think, yeah, in terms of regionality, certainly Stay Close is Northwest and then there's a Scottish show we're working on and, and like there's lots of shows we're working on across the UK 
and with companies across the UK and writers from across the UK. And so I think regionality is, is another aspect of diversity and it all speaks to that central point of variety. And, you know, it's, it's often just um, finding the best stories like creates diversity naturally. Uh, question here, kind of challenging uh, what you were saying earlier, uh, saying, has Squid Game proved that audiences want contact that, content that is just great rather than necessarily local? Would that make you rethink your strategy? That's this question. So personally, I think Squid Game is incredibly local. So it's, it's a Korean show about Korean children's games set within a sort of format that is a Korean sort of format. And what it shows is that Netflix can take a show that you know, is, I would argue, hyper-local, and then it can be loved by the world. So, um, yeah, I'd probably dispute the idea that I think that's the, personally, I think the joy, I don't know what you guys think, but the joy of um, totally. Like Lupin, Casa de Papel, those shows are all like fundamentally born out of the countries they were made in, but are hugely popular everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's the dream, really, isn't it? That, that that's how you kind of get that real mix of content. That you I would hope it was freeing, like so that we can stop worrying about... Um, Oh, we need like an Italian person and a German person yeah. mm -hmm. and an American person. Like, like, just chill, make a good show, and then it will travel. Absolutely. Do you know, I cannot wait any longer, Lindsay, uh, to talk to you about one day. Can Can you tell us more about what you're doing? Yes. Uh, so, a while ago, we were talking about, oh, it'd be great to do a romance, an epic romance. Where can we find an epic romance? And to be fair, quite a few producers were thinking, oh, you know, we've got a romance. It's a bit like this with sort of the format of, you know, one day, or we've got this, uh, which has got the humour of like one day. And we kept being like, oh, it'd be so great to have one day. Uh, and then Drama Republic came to us and uh, said, we have uh, one day, uh, the TV series. We don't have a script yet, but we have an amazing writer, Nicole Taylor. Uh, what do you think about it? It's a TV series. And we were like, we think yes. Um, so anyone who doesn't know one day, uh, it's an amazing book uh, by David Nichols, and essentially it's about Emma and Dexter, and every chapter um, is the same day every year, but you move on with them over 20 years. So it, I think in terms of speaking to the UK as well, it's like a backdrop of Britain, and but also just a really gorgeous, tragic, comic love story. Uh, so yes, so that is a commission from us, and we'll be filming next year, and they're writing all the scripts at the moment. Superb. And our final announcement. Sophie, can you tell me about Chaos? Yeah, um, so Chaos is from Charlie Covell, who wrote The End of the Fucking World. And um, that was a co-production we did with Channel 4. We absolutely loved working with her, and we loved her brilliant, brilliant brain. So we decided to go forth and do her next series, which is a contemporary reimagining of the Greek mythology, kind of flipped on its head, as she does with anything she does, essentially. And it's very, very darkly comedic, as you can expect from Charlie and it all begins when Zeus discovers he has his first wrinkle in a millennia. And he is freaking out. And Prometheus is just like, no, 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 you don't have a wrinkle. But he definitely does. And that means that the prophecy might be happening. And what happens next, uh, you'll have to stay tuned. But you'll have to wait a while because we're going into production in a couple months. Fantastic. So many exciting things to come. There's a question coming in here. I mean, you've said about variety, but they're saying, would you only uh, commission things that are recurring? Is that your preference for things to be able to have a second series? Or do you also love limited series? Such a mix. Like limiteds, returning, whatever is the best shape for the story. We don't have slots to fill, as it were, in the traditional sense. So it's, we can make the 
the slots work for the story in the show. So it, there's no particular preference. There's a question here about how broadcasters chase younger audiences. Is, is that the case at Netflix? They're saying, is it because uh, the audiences... Sorry, the question is, are, is there a desire to reach younger audiences or are you looking across the board? I'm trying to just paraphrase I think I think we're looking across the board because, again, you know, Netflix doesn't look at demographics in the way other broadcasters do. Um, we don't... When you sign up for Netflix, we don't actually take any of your information. So we don't know how old you are. We don't know what race we are, you are, what gender you are. You, it, we know your where your computer is at that minute but that's about it and so it so the question becomes what which shows do people love doesn't it doesn't you know you could be I mean I always say the same thing you could be like 67 and a woman in Bangalore or 15 and a young boy in Glasgow and if you're both watching Squid Games or if you're both watching Virgin River that's what you have in common. So we're not chasing demographics in the way that other people do. We're just trying to set, find amazing shows that somebody will love. We're trying to, like we talk about member joy, we're trying to find things that people will be passionate about. And it goes to what Tom was saying about conversation. If you can find something that somebody truly loves, like Lindsay loves one day, and she really loves one day, um, then she'll talk about it. Um, and then somebody else will hear her talk about it with passion and then watch it. And then that will be a chain effect. So you know, it allows us to have a variety of work, you know, from sort of baby reindeer mm -hmm. through to Lockwood & Co. And each piece is about finding an audience, an advocating audience that will love that. It's not saying, oh, this is just for young people, even though obviously sex ed skews young, half bad will skew young. We do have pieces that you think will skew young, but that's not the point. If older people, you know, sex ed is such a global hit, it has to be watched by a lot of older people because it, otherwise it just couldn't do the numbers it does. So I think it's genuinely about finding pieces that you think, oh my God, I'm going to have to tell somebody about that. You know, that's what, you know, that's what Eric is for me. Like, trust me, it's so nice to be able to talk about it publicly because I just love it and I want to tell everybody how brilliant I think it is. And I think that's the underlying thing about everything we're doing is just going, oh my God, somebody, and somebody in the team, not necessarily me, somebody in the team loves it. And then we'll be, you know, as an independent producer, we'll be your partner on that journey from that initial thought. You know, chaos has been Sophie's passion for a few years. Um, and she's been just championing it doggedly all the way through. And that's what I want from our team is that people come to us because they know that we are going to like fight to the end to make that show successful. We won't do loads of things, but when we do, we are going to properly mean it. Tom, can you give a little bit of practical advice about who people should approach and what stage of development projects should be in? Yeah, like as Anne said, we all commission. And so it's kind of whoever you might think you might have the relationship with or you might think is kind of the best person for that. We're a small team, so we also tend to chat a lot about everything. We tend to chat a lot generally, but we tend to chat a lot about projects that come in as well. Um, I'm often just more poised on my emails because I'm not as busy in production as everyone else, so I can maybe be a good kind of first port of call. Um, and because we don't do tons of speculative development, it, it's so useful to know kind of really clearly what the proposition of the show is when we're kind of coming to it. And so invariably that means we'd be looking for a script or something close to a script at that submission stage. Um, it's not that that's kind of at the exclusion of ever looking at stuff at an earlier point. 
It's just to say that we might be able to look at something at an early point and say, we're interested, but probably need to see a script to actually come on board. Because we don't, we don't want to end up kind of buying a pink show to make it blue. You know, it's about buying into everyone's vision at the beginning and then kind of going into development on that. So I think having as fulsome a sense of what the show is at that point of coming to us um, and just kind of chatting with us because um, we're around. Amazing. I just want to check that there's no one who's got a question who hasn't been able to use the app. Put your hands up at this moment, if so. Are we all okay? Yes, there we go. Hello. If you have secured commissions, say, from CBBC or, say, from, uh, you know, a drama commissioner, but you haven't obviously got your resource, can we come to you then in terms of, you know, you were saying you're working in many different ways. Can you outline how, you know, you're maybe working with partners who are, who've already got commissions in the UK already who then come to you to explore secondary rights and different types of deals as well? Thank you. So Obviously, uh, we'd all love an original, but, you know, just saying, you know, it would be nice to talk options. Thank you. So we look after uh, co-productions and we use that as a bit of a catch-all term in some respects. So those are projects that are probably original first series that are set up with one broadcast already and looking for a partner to come in for UK second window, rest of the world. And so that would be through our team and it's kind of come to us as soon as is appropriate with the other broadcaster once you have the green light or just about to get the green light. And we're, we're super happy to have that conversation and jump in there. If it's kind of licensing, then that does sit in a, in a slightly separate team, uh, who I think is speaking, we're at Content London, um, and that's via EMEA, so that, that would be uh, Kai Finke's team, and that would be purely looking at the kind of licensing of shows that are already running in the UK, and it's, and it's then buying rights for rest of the world or selling rights for secondary windows. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. And anyone else before we go back? My question is about national stories. If Squid Game and um, I'm in Spain, Casa de Papel have shown that international audiences don't necessarily gravitate to local, but to what's good and what they what they relate to. Is are you open to transnational stories, which may have be set partly in Britain or the UK and partly in another culture? Yeah, I mean we're open to everything, um, but you're still trying to tell an authentic authentic story. I saw, Sometimes I'm a sort of a little tiny bit, it just depends on the story. It's the why of it. Yeah, we're doing 39 steps that's set in Venice, yeah. Berlin, London. I mean, it's set all over the world, but that makes sense for the story. I'm slightly more nervous about something that is just arbitrarily set in different places because you sort of go, we are the UK team and we're trying to promote UK content in truth. And what are your ambitions going forward? You've done such a, a huge amount already, and now you're such a settled, strong, confident team. What, when you look at the future, what, what do you get excited about? We've got another five um, announcements for January. <laughs> um, so we, we're just... Um, like I, I, just, I, want, I want us to be a place where, if you're a UK viewer of Netflix, one of your favourite shows sits with us. Like, that's it. Like, you know, and it's... We want you to watch loads of things, but if one of your favourite shows is one of our shows, then that would be that would be just wonderful because it's a real privilege to have people watch your material. Um, and I also really want us to be the place where, like, the best creators in the UK want to come first. Like, they'll be like, you know what? We'll try the UK team because they're all right. Swear a bit, but they're all right. And then, like, that they people feel like they were really an open door to talk to, to collaborate with. You know, the people feel that we will back their voice, you know, and that we'll be straight and truthful and quick, you know, that, and that people just want to work with us. Like, 
it's probably not a lofty goal. I th but yeah, they were, they were all right, really. And I hope within the variety, we, we surprise people. Yeah. You know, so whenever we start to, it, it feels we're getting a bit complacent. It's like, oh, it's more of this, or it's more of that type of flavor that Netflix offers, that we go, oh, but what about this, though? And somebody goes, oh my gosh, how exciting. I never thought they'd do something for that. And it's not about pleasing everyone, as Anne says, but it's showing that we're offering variety and surprise so that people don't second guess us, and our members don't second guess us, and it becomes boring and traditional, we keep sort of reinventing the wheel and having fun with that. I guess it must be liberating, but also a little bit scary, just having being able to pick anything, having that kind of variety, not having, I must please this user or, the, or this this age group or whatever it might be. I mean, yes, it's, it's both an incredible privilege and a total nightmare, probably. <laughs> um, but it's, I mean, but that's why it's so brilliant to be in the UK, because there's so much opportunity here and so many amazing people to work with um, that we're just unbelievably lucky. And it's also very liberating because, um, you know, as much as we love drama or comedy, we can also kind of find new genres and break new ground in that way. And I think that there's a lot of shows on our new slate that do that, that you won't be able to necessarily define or box in, but will surprise and delight everyone and kind of push the, the, the narrative forward of what a genre even is. It's a good question here. Um, someone says, it's really great that we can come to any of you, but do you, each of you have a particular taste or a particular kind of script that you champion or, or not? What I would say is if you don't know us, go to Tom first because that's the only authentic way to do it because it, it, everybody's tastes change all the time. So what you should know is that once then Tom brings it to the whole team and somebody in the team will then find it rather than trying to second guess, oh, Sophie likes one thing and Lindsay likes another. Yeah, because it changes. Once you've got your romance, you're like, actually, I'm focused now. on. And also, we get busy in production, and we are still a small team. So Tom is... Just, I like everything. You like Tom. It's just like... <laughs> loves no, everything. and I'd say that like we all just really love good storytelling, so we, we don't always know what we love until we read it. Yeah. And, I mean, there's a question here about what genres you decide to focus on. When you say you wanted a romance, was that just your personal taste, or you felt no, there that was, was a gap? A that was a conversation we were having a while ago where we were just going, oh, we're not, we're not getting romances. We were getting, at that point, we were getting a lot of genre in, yep. and we were like, oh, but we're not getting something just, you know, it's, characters that don't live in a genre world. It's all, always been the thing about when everybody else is thinking left, think right. So, you know, if everybody's giving you genre shows, then where's your show that just deals with character and emotion? Um, and trying to make sure that we don't tread the line that everybody else is treading, but equally that we lean into the mainstream. Because I think one of the tricky things with Netflix tends to be that television producers, lovely people, but watch particular, maybe come from a particular class and watch a particular type of show and actually sometimes therefore miss just the mainstream and I love the mainstream and so actually you know sometimes sometimes being different is saying okay can we lean into the mainstream now. Netflix's Anne Mensa, Lindsay Salt, Sophie Klein and Tom Lyons talking with Emma Bullimore as part of C21's Content London. There'll be more from the event in the podcast next week and on C21 FM from Monday but in the meantime stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.